Welcome to Institutionalized, Living After Deconstruction and Promoting Mental Health. I'm your host, Josh T, and each week we'll dive into interesting topics and bring you stories from fellow travelers on the road of life. In this raw, accepting, and sometimes hilarious space, we'll ask the questions we weren't allowed to ask, challenge norms that keep us stuck in the past, and actively listen to perspectives that might be different than our own. And if we listen carefully enough, we might learn something that helps us love ourselves and our neighbors better. This is Institutionalized, Living After Deconstruction. Hey, welcome to Institutionalized. I'm Josh and I'm here with uh, Jeremy Martin. Jeremy, how you doing, man? Feeling good, man. It's early morning where I'm at, but feeling good. We got connected, man, 20, was it 20 some years ago? It was just over 20 years ago, 2003. Yeah, I was coaching basketball at Tennessee Temple and and uh, you were the first player that I had that dunked in a game, in a, <laughs> in a game that we lost by seventy-seven points. Yeah, I was gonna say that that tends to get overshadowed by the score. <laughs> oh, I didn't tell anybody about the score after that game except for my dad, but I told yeah. him that we lost by eleven. Touchdowns! Touchdowns! <laughs> yeah, how you been, man? Oh man, doing good. Feeling good. It- it's uh, it's really cold here in Las Vegas, which is unusual. So I don't go outside if I can avoid it, and because uh, I hate the cold weather. What is really cold in Las Vegas? It was thirty degrees this morning when I woke up. Was it? Yeah, that, that actually is pretty cold. That yeah. desert, desert <laughs> frost, desert cold. Yeah, they're they're expecting snow today or tomorrow in the valley, which is happens every now and then, uh, and it's weird. <laughs> awesome man well jeremy's the author of a book called build a bigger table is that correct that is correct yes. available on amazon tell us a little bit about the book yeah uh, so the book came about as a way to try and explain this very different type of community of faith that we were starting in downtown las vegas in 2016 we started um team building and fundraising and really kind of imagining what it could be we knew we wanted it to be uh, different because the downtown community of Las Vegas was different. And so we were trying to figure out ways that it was different. And um, we landed on this very uh, discussion oriented gathering space mm. uh, it, where a gathering space was, wasn't rows, it was circles, it was tables and chairs. And um, one of the things that kind of came out of all the exploration we did as a team and preparation we did as a team was this idea of, of sitting around a table and how important that was. Um, we started our very first gatherings were actually um, at a, a, a local brewery that, that had a bar and, and we called it Pub Theology, um, which was branded by another guy. I just found material for like how to have these, you know, cultural conversations, philosophical, religious. And so, yeah, so we started meeting at a, at a, a brewery downtown and uh everything was very like local and uh the first one i thought for sure you know i set up a table for like five people hoping that you know some people would show yeah. up and and we had like almost 20 people we had to set up two different tables and it just was a total buzz and we had all we had people that actually ended up joining our core team uh to help us start the church um from that night uh people who were new to faith who didn't have any faith at all but thought a 
church community in the area would be really cool. Uh, all these things. And so, yeah, so we, it kind of developed after meeting around tables, this idea of like, oh, okay, so we're going to do that at the church too. And so we're going to set up tables and chairs. And so I kind of just took that biblically and, and was working on a, a, a series to talk about that and um, just said, wow, this, uh, this idea of tables in the Bible is everywhere. And um, some tables Jesus flipped and sometimes he invited the worst <laughs> of the worst too. And some table, you know, there's just different kinds of tables. And so we talked about the idea of building a bigger table. And that was kind of our, our motto. That was what we wanted to do. We wanted to create more types of discussions around tables because it was so different. Every time I talked to somebody, they they went, oh, I've heard of something like that. And then they would tell me about something that was nothing like that because it, it, was, it wasn't about the, the tables per se or the discussion element. It was about the philosophy underneath it mm-hmm. is that the bigger table aspect, the idea that we wanted more, we, we wanted people at our discussions who were all over the map, um, mm. spiritually, um, politically, ethnically, all all of all of the things. Uh, we wanted the different um, different kinds of people, and we wanted to be a welcoming table that that listened to everyone. And again, not everyone's going to always agree. Not everyone's going to uh, see things the same way, and we were going to be okay with that. And so people, yeah, people struggled to understand it when we talked to them about it. So I thought, well, I'll just write about it and uh, talk a little bit about myself in the beginning, like of how I came to where I came to. And um, yeah, like I was sitting with a guy who had kind of been, this is right before, I had already started writing it, but I, I had put it away. And maybe, I think you've written a couple of books, you maybe know what that's like, where yeah. you put everything down, you go, that's not it, that's not it, and you put it away. And I was talking to a, a gentleman who is, he's, I don't want to name drop or anything like that, but he's, if I said his name, everybody would know, and some people would have very different reactions. Um, but I was sitting with him, he's just very wise, and I just mentioned um, kind of my background in the independent fundamental Baptist movement, and he was like, well, wow, what did are you doing sitting here with me? <laughs> like uh, it just had, it had been a real journey, you know, yeah. uh, uh, from one place to another. And so I kind of write about that just so people get a perspective of where I was coming from and why I was um, trying to create that space for people. That's interesting that he automatically assumed that you wouldn't be talking to him if you were independent fundamental Baptist. Yes, um, because apparently he was familiar enough with the independent yeah. fundamental Baptist, which I also realized when I got out of that world, people aren't that familiar with it. Like growing mm. up in it, it was like this, this was all there is. And it was the greatest yeah. thing in the world. And you're told, you know, there's, and it's like, oh, wait, no, that's not even all there is in church world. And then not everybody else is going to hell. And, you know, it was just a whole thing like, oh, oh. and like, it was funny is like Tennessee Temple, while it was, it was still independent fundamental Baptist, and, and I'm sure you can speak to the character of me going to TTU was actually a breakout of my bubble. Ah, uh, you which from was, Trinity. Yes, which was even a little more conservative. I remember I remember sitting because my roommate was the son of our pastor. I remember sitting with um the with Dave Bowler, who was pastor and I guess president of the college mm-hmm. or whatever at the time, and and with um, my roommate's dad, and and he was just asking, like, how did how did you do this? Where you changed all these things? Because he he had really changed some things 
uh, Bowler did at the school, apparently. Again, I, it was my first year there. Um, but some of the rules he got more relaxed on and things mm-hmm. like that. And he was just like, how, how do you do that? Because if I do that, you know, my constituents will go elsewhere. And uh, I just remember thinking, like, like moving from not wearing ties to class to wearing, like, khakis and a collared shirt, like, that's that's such a big deal. Like, you can't make that rule change. Like, I, I don't know. It's yeah. just so weird. And it's such a small bubble world. When uh, I think about some of the stuff that we used to, the rules that we used to have, uh, even at Temple, I mean, the high school wasn't, it didn't seem as uh, yes. restrictive so much our, as the college. high school, same way. Same the way. college was, um, the college, there was a lot more bureaucracy and it was a lot more tied into the church, I think, mm-hmm. uh, than the high school was. The high school was kind of so small. We did our own thing yeah. and we celebrated sports so much. We were going to make sure that we played against all the public schools. And so that kind of mm-hmm. put us out in the world a little bit. And <laughs> I don't know if that was, that was the beginning of the end for me, but there were ties with Tennessee temple. We used to have guys from Trinity um, come and speak at our place. And one of the big patriarchs at Trinity uh, was convicted of abusing was it a lot of children for 40 some years? Yeah. yeah. How, what impact did that have on you, your faith? Uh, yeah, yeah. I remember that was like right when you were in college, wasn't it? When all that came out? No, that actually was. Um, well, so when it came out at the church, I was, you know, eight, nine, 10 years old. Okay. Uh, and so, you know, my parents were, were keyed in and clued in to, to things. And so, you know, we definitely had a perspective, but I think it was really downplayed. Um, but what, what I did know was that, you know, even as a kid, that the parents in the church decided to handle it outside of the law, which I think was a bad idea. Um, I mean, it's terrible idea. Yeah. So, it's, <laughs> but, but then, <laughs> yeah, you don't have to have an opinion on that one. That's just the whole, yeah. that's just wrong. You're just wrong, 100%. And so the deal that was made was that Bob Gray would never, ever preach on campus at Trinity ever again in any capacity, that the church would not support him in any way financially, and he was to publicly apologize for what he had done. Um, and so you know, that was in, I think, early 90s. Uh, and so he... He, I remember him publicly apologizing, and then they were like, "Now nah, he's going to go be a missionary to Germany." And we're like, "I was like, that's weird." Um, like even as a kid, like really. Uh, and so yeah, I'm just going to move him on somewhere else. Yeah, which even is though he's like, a, the like child yeah. molester. Yeah, and we know it, and he's admitted it, and yeah, so we're going to do that. Um, really downplayed it, and so fast forward, to, I think I believe it was 2008 when everything came out 2008 or 2009 when he was officially arrested Mm. Uh, and he was living in a house that the church had bought. So he was back in America that that was financially supporting. Right. So that's one, one part of the deal that was broken. Uh, But I remember sitting at lunch, I was teaching at a, a, a school a mile down the road and one of the guys from the college, uh, his, 
now wife, but girlfriend was fiance or whatever, was working at the school as well. And so he was there. He was also the janitor or something like, you know, when he wasn't in school. And so he was over there at lunchtime. And I remember him getting all excited. Hey, Bob Gray is going to be preaching at our baccalaureate service for graduation. And I said, no, he's not. He was, yeah, yeah, he is. Look, he's, he's on the brochure. I said, well, I'm telling you right now. And, and I'm, you know, at this point, this is, you know, yeah, 16 years later, something like that, 50, longer. And I'm like, uh, he's not. I just remember, like, he's he can't. And he said, yeah, yeah, he's on the brochure. And all that. I said, well, if that's true, then it's about to all break loose. It's mm. about to get real bad. And he was like, what are you talking about? He didn't have a clue. So I tell him, and sure enough, that evening, I get home, and the news is out front of Trinity, and they are talking about the the people who were kids. You know, it's mostly like preteens, I believe. Mm-hmm. Uh, and and so now they're, you know, however old they would be at that time. And uh, they start, and I don't know if it was because there was a there was a law that changed where basically it removed the statute of limitations if you were a minor when it happened and you're you want to file a report now, like as an adult. Um, the statute of limitations when it comes to child abuse and stuff like that, I think is so ridiculous. Yes. Because, you know, some, especially uh, so many reports happen so much later because, you know what I mean? It's because your kids. Yeah. Yeah. You don't, maybe you don't even talk about it. You don't even know. Yeah. And you're conditioned, you're conditioned to silence. And that's one of those things like when all that came out, I'll tell you, it it rocked me. It rocked me pretty hard just because I had heard him speak a bunch of times. Oh, really? Yeah, yeah. Like I had I had absolutely uh, no idea about any of the stuff before. Yeah, and, and that he, for, he, for I, me, it didn't have a big impact because I already knew about it. Okay. So again, where a lot of people had already had it been had been hidden, you know, from again, the constituents and the people that were associated, other churches that were associated, largely it had been hidden. So, you know, as to not, you know, they say it's to, to protect the name of Christ. I think it's to protect the name of the church and to protect the name of whoever that person is, you know, yeah. that's the only people that it protects. Um, yeah. So the, uh, it didn't really bother me as far as like shaking my faith or anything like that. I had already kind of looked at the idea that, oh, like human beings, fail right and mm. that's that's just what this was and that's kind of how my parents explained it to me it wasn't you know um and that was fortunately my parents were a little different than the church we went to right like they liked putting us there we were in the christian school we were in the church i went to the college like it was a whole thing same campus kindergarten through two and a half years in the college um it's very much but, like my experience at yeah. tennessee temple yeah and so they they my parents thought differently than a lot of people did at the church and they didn't just, so like going to the movies, remember like when that was yeah. a big deal, like in the nineties and you know eighties, you weren't supposed to go to the movies. And um, I remember like we went and saw karate kid two in the theater. <laughs> and, uh, and I remember like somebody at church being like, oh, you went to the movies. You're not allowed to do that. You're supposed to, like, that's, that's a sin or something like that. And I went to my dad and I said, Hey, how you, you know, so-and-so told me at church, like, we're not supposed to be doing, why did we go to the movies? It was the same. Why would you? He said, well, in some things in life, uh, your mom and I make the decision for our family. 
and then their mom and dad make the decision for their family and they're going to be different. And so yeah. but we make the decision for our family and we say that it's okay. You know, that's but, something cool. <laughs> that's, that's fascinating. It mirrors a lot of my experience with my parents too. And it was almost like the love and liberty that mm-hmm. I had from my parents was so opposite of what I was, what, what was preached at me from the church that I went to. It was, it was like, and what I learned about God, like God's love compared to my father's love couldn't compare. And that was right. something that was very, that was a difficult thing for me to, to deal with, you know, Yeah, rather than it being God loves you like a good father would, it was, no, I have a good father. And the way you're describing God yeah. doesn't match. He's watching um, me while I sleep. I mean, right. he, <laughs> sounds a lot more like Santa Claus with, yes, you know, the ultimate punishment for me if I screw up. Yeah. Uh, and, and the obsession with uh, death and hell and judgment uh, was very real. Uh, you know, it's, I don't know if you've ever struggled with anxiety. We didn't know to call it anxiety when I was coming up, but like I look back now and I go, Oh, I was having constant panic attacks. Mm. I couldn't sleep. I I thought it was insomnia. Now I would say it's probably more uh, would be like major anxieties that I had over the preaching that we heard growing up. The, like you're talking about the, the 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 judgment, the God's out to get you, the the obsession with um, the afterlife, right? It, it was almost like these two things. There was this obsession with the past mm-hmm. that was preferred, this preferred past, uh, and then this you know preferred future. Whereas now everything sucks, and that's kind of how you're, you know what I mean? Like everything's yeah. awful. One day it'll be good. It used to be good, and one day it'll be good in heaven. It's just this obsession with like this afterlife stuff. And and uh, that's actually one of the things that crept back in during COVID was some death anxiety that I had during, you know, that felt very similar to when I was a kid. Um, and uh, while I didn't catch COVID and COVID, I mean, it didn't really affect me and my family. I mean, there's certainly people I knew that, that you know, um, passed away and things like that. Um, but I would say that was one of the biggest things the anxieties that it caused. Yeah, uh, that, those traumas. Have you read the book The Body Keeps Score? No, I've heard of it. Oh. I have not read it. Yeah. Yeah, I mean it's it's so good. And I, my experience with COVID, uh, when you know my when I was having neurological issues and stuff like that, it was like all the traumas came coming back, mm. and it was like all the stuff that I had stored in my body just was. Right making me more sick and uh yeah there was a lot of um a lot of therapy having to get yeah. through all that I, I i can totally relate to your anxieties i remember thinking man i just hope jesus doesn't come back until i get to have sex oh that was the number one <laughs> like if we're being honest every yeah. <laughs> every independent fundamental baptist guy maybe i can't speak for the women but i know the guys it was just like I just want to have sex one time and then God can come back and we're all good. Uh, and 
And if the rapture happens while I'm in a compromising position, that would just be the worst. Would be the worst because uh, obviously we're all going to be snatched up and just seated in our current position. Yeah. Like, you know what I mean? Like, again, the, the, the mental gymnastics around those things, like we're just, it was crazy. And, and it's one of the things that, you know, my I, I really try and look out for for my kids. And I'm actually grateful that they're not going to have. Now, my son, very similarly to me, um, he's, he's, he's very intelligent. He has like an unusual intelligence. And so people like that tend to struggle with anxieties. Um, they, they're too smart for their own good. And they know all the possible situations way too early. You know, he's just too early as a kid. Yeah. Um, and, and sometimes I probably share more, you know, about things like, you know, yesterday I was on Facebook and bam, another person has happened a lot lately that I know and that I cherished and loved growing up, um, passed away. No one knows why I haven't seen anything. Like another friend of mine had just seen him like, you know, the day before and then boom, dead. And uh, so I have to, I try and be careful, but he, he noticed my face, my visage change and uh, asked me about it. And so I gave him a straight answer, but uh, so maybe I share too much with him, but, but he can, he also can struggle with those things. But uh, fortunately as a, someone who went through it, I feel like I can help him cope and uh, yeah. push through, you know, I had to develop my own coping mechanisms. You know, there wasn't therapy and you didn't talk about it, you know, know. those kind of things. and. I, you know, we kind of, me and Abby took the approach of, um, there's not too much we can share with our kids when it comes to information. Mm-hmm. There, there is too much we can share with our kids when it comes to opinions and trying to paint over them. Sure. You know what I mean? But when it comes to information, when it comes to education, when it comes to, if they have a question, mm-hmm. I mean, I can, I can tell my daughter my opinion, but I'm going to tell her that that's an opinion. Yes. You know? And separating those two things is important, I think, in, in parenting, um, yeah. because we always do it. We did, we, we would do it this way. Um, and again, this is vastly different than most of the people we grew up with and how I was raised. But I remember my son, he was real little, maybe two. He was sitting, watching my wife put makeup on and he asked about like putting makeup on or I can't remember what. If he asked directly that, and I just, but I brought up the situation, um, you know, what if he asked, like, to put makeup on, what would you say? And she's like, uh, I don't know. I would tell him boys don't wear makeup. I was like, but what about when he grows up and he sees a boy wearing makeup? Hmm. And she, I was like, what about me? I was doing acting and comedy at the time, and I had stage makeup that I wore uh, because I'm balding and I needed to buff up the, you know, the forehead. and. And she's like, oh, yeah. I said, yeah, it's okay to say in our family, the boys don't wear makeup. Yeah. Or in our family, sometimes the boys wear makeup, <laughs> right? Like, <laughs> but it doesn't, but it, the, the absolute, right, is not necessarily true for the world as a whole. If you go absolute with it, you're going to end up taking Halloween away. Absolutely. 100%. <laughs> so, Jeremy, as a pastor, friend, human being, what does the word deconstruction mean to you and how do you help people get through this? Yeah. So it's uh, the whole idea of deconstruction, you know, over the last few years, if we called it 
Reformation 2.0. I think we'd be. I think the church world would have embraced it a little more. Mm. Um, but the people that were doing it called it deconstruction, which really seemed to bother a lot of people. In 2007, I sat and listened at a youth. I was a youth pastor at the time, or actually, I was working at a school and doing youth ministry as well. And I went to a conference, and I heard a lady. She was. 70 plus years old, right? Way older than most of the other speakers at a youth conference, you know, our youth pastor convention. Mm-hmm. <clears throat> and uh, her name was Phyllis Tickle. Um, you heard Phyllis friend. Tickle? Yeah. So once oh, I got wow. the laughing at the name, I'd never even heard of her. And um, yeah. it was one of her last times speaking, actually, from what from what I, I learned. I know she passed away um, not long after that. And it was one of the most amazing. So when you talk about deconstruction, that was when mine started. Mm. She absolutely blew my mind with her insight into what was happening underneath everything in churches across the the country and across the world, and what was happening and, and how there was this pattern of every five hundred years, and we were you know coming up on five hundred years since the last Reformation, and she called it this new Reformation, and she had this whole and I just went whoa, like I mean it was it was amazing. What yeah, she her, dropped on us. I've heard a couple of her presentations on YouTube. Probably watched about yeah. three hours of her speaking, and I was as the same same reaction. Now I I saw that like three years ago. Yeah, and yeah, uh, so yeah, during this COVID. Was, yeah, this is probably two thousand seven, and and I and I, and so like when I trace it back, I go, yes, she let me know something new was coming, and I knew I wanted to be a part of it. Mm. And so at that point, I had I had firmly kind of removed myself from most of like the independent fundamental Baptist world and was really kind of searching for kind of where I would land. I think I was uh, maybe going to church at a, eventually went to an, uh, a North Point church where Andy Stanley's had a, a partnership church that planted in Jacksonville. And I went, I went there and I was probably going there at the same time or around the same time and getting I don't know. That was some again new conversations. Some new things were being said and done, and so when I heard her talk about, it, she called it the New Reformation, and where really what she was talking about was deconstruction, mm-hmm. and it it was exactly what happened during the Reformation, right? And again, people in certain worlds had this like preferred past, right? Of this, oh man, this guy did this amazing thing, and it was awesome, and you know he, he reformed the church and it needed to be because the Catholic Church was evil and all this kind of stuff, and it's like well. Our churches have become that, yeah. And we need to reform, right? We we need to we need to change some things. And when you're invested financially uh, in things staying the same, it it becomes real difficult to be the agent of change. And so, yeah, people in in churches that are perpetuating these things, like you know, it deconstruction became a bad word. Um, mm. And it really started with the emergent uh, emerging church movement uh, that was there that that came and went. Um, you know, it 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 got some things in an effort to be different. I think it got some things wrong as well. You know, yeah. Um, and and it didn't last. Um, but I was interested in what was going on there, and just kind of interested in how all these things were were playing out in in our history, basically. But it was in the present, you know, and. Uh, so then this idea of deconstruction comes along and I loved the idea because what I saw, and this is what I say that 
makes um, a lot of people from our church background kind of balk at it is I actually see deconstruction as incredibly biblical and incredibly Christ-like, which Ooh. really bothers people. Elaborate. Why? Well, when Jesus said, you've heard it said, but I say, what was he doing for the people in his audience? He was shattering their current religious system as they understood it. Mm-hmm. What you're saying is, you've heard it said, these things were said this way for a certain reason, and you've missed the point. Mm. We, we've missed the point. Here's the point. And so he, you know, Sermon on the Mount is a classic example of Jesus reshaping their religious worldview and tearing down the things that they thought were were of God. I mean, e- even the idea that Jesus, you know, when he talks about, you know, he healed on the sa- the Sabbath, and then he was like, who who of you doesn't pull your donkey out of a ditch on the Sabbath, right? But that was that was a big deal for him to work on the Sabbath, even if yeah. it meant healing somebody. It was shattering their worldview. And so I think when you look at, uh, when you move from Jesus and the Gospels to Paul uh, and Peter, I mean, you look at Peter's experience, was a total deconstruction experience, right? I can eat bacon now. That wasn't the point, right? Although I'm glad <laughs> I can eat bacon now, but that wasn't the point. The point was everything that you thought mattered in this religious construct doesn't matter anymore. Mm. Or at least it doesn't matter in the same way, right? I don't, I don't think Jesus ever called people to not be Jewish or even to practice Judaism. I think he was calling them to reassess everything that they were doing religiously and spiritually. Literally, he told them, your body is the, what Paul, right? Your body is the temple of the Holy Spirit. But he was telling them, no, 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 the temple's over there. Oh, no, no, the temple was was literally broken down and deconstructed in a, so that you could be the temple. Mm-hmm. And I think that's what Jesus was doing. So, yeah, so some people really balk at that. I actually think it's biblical. And people think if you're deconstructing that you've thrown the Bible out and you're trying to build something, you're trying to navigate life without the Bible. And for me, it's it's actually quite different. Um, it meant diving into the Bible in a fresh and new way, which leads to, um, oh, this thing I've been told my whole life might not be absolutely true. Oh, this interpretation that I was given of the Bible, because when someone says the Bible says this, what they're saying is this is what this is what the Bible says. That's what they say. And they follow they and they followed up is and what that means. And then here yes. comes here comes. So their then they tell you what it means. And what they really mean is this is what it means to me. So anytime yeah. someone says this is what the Bible says, they're saying what the Bible, what they think the Bible means, and this is what it means to me. And so there is no it's the hermeneutical obstacle. There is no biblical teaching without biblical interpretation first. And so actually one of the things that, that I, I will say that I'm incredibly grateful for in my upbringing was a love for uh, hermeneutics, for diving in and studying and figuring out. But it's so funny how when you actually do that, you come to different conclusions than what everybody was preaching that I was listening to as I'm studying hermeneutics in college. But then I'm listening to what they're saying. And I'm going, But it seems like they didn't even try. Like, they yeah. what do you mean? And so there were certain issues that, that you know, in my life, I started to deconstruct, especially when I left. I, I was working for a church in, in North Las Vegas, and they, um, 
were becoming more and more that like new reformed in their theology. Um, and I just couldn't reconcile certain things. Um, it definitely caused some tension, but it wasn't a huge deal. Uh, and then when I left there, because I felt this pull to start a church in downtown and, and I remember telling my wife and I write about this in the book that I had this tool belt that I had built my entire life for ministry. And it seemed like none of those tools were going to work for what, what God had for us next. Mm. And um, so, but the one tool that I did have was keep interpreting, keep diving in deeper, keep finding the historical, the geographical context, like, like get into it. And when I did that with some fresh eyes, what I was doing was deconstructing. I was looking at, okay, I've always been told this. I was, I thought this in college, you know, and, and I wrote a paper on this this way, but maybe that's not what I actually believe. And so brick by brick, I just started reevaluating, uh, gosh, you want to call them the doctrines, the teachings, the things that I grew up with as far as yeah. to, to the Bible and religion. And I'm really glad I did. And I'm glad I did it that way um, for uh, so many people. And when we started the church, it really became clear that we became a church for people like this. For so many people, their faith had been, their 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 construct had just been you know, a wrecking ball. You know, um, Miley Cyrus just ran right through the whole building and knocked it all down. And I, and you see all the, the the hurt that that causes and the way that that really affects people and and. Um, what I found there, and this is the side of things that people who are deconstructing tend to get upset at me, right? Like people that don't like deconstruction don't like being told that it's biblical and Christ-like. But on the other side, deconstruction without reconstruction is just destruction. Mm. You're just sitting in the rubble of a past and your past hurts. And when people do that, they become very angry. Um, they become almost fundamentalist but on the other side of the spectrum right they're yeah. still they're still angry and bitter about what they believe it's just on a different side of the spectrum now i want to have love and grace for those people uh, i'll be honest with you i've been one of those people for a long time yeah like i mentioned on on this podcast that you know my deconstruction started you know around 21 and i was probably a closet atheist for 10 to 15 years until I started to crack the door open a little bit. And that was just, that was through art. That was through writing, through really wrestling mm -hmm. with a lot of the things that I was struggling with. And then I finished the book and then COVID happened and it all happened again. Oh. And the, the anger and the hypocrisy and, you know, all of this, all of the tensions socially and politically that were going on. And, and, you know, an, the abuses, the the Southern Baptist Church case with the 950 cases that had been swept under the rug, and the, we had personally seen stuff like this happen. It was just so difficult to reconcile. It's like, how is this the right way? And then once I started thinking about trying to market this this <laughs> violent novel that I wrote, I came across that there's a whole space of deconstruction. Like yes. I had no idea who Peter Enns was or, mm -hmm. or Peter Rollins, um, Brian McLaurin, Rachel Held Evans. And 
these like you started this in 2007 and that kind of cracked the door again for me like deconstruction for me meant like oh there's a chance i have a chance like right. i can maybe believe again yeah you know? and i think well i think it's there's most of the people who've grown up kind of in a religious system they don't want to abandon god or jesus like that doesn't sit right with them uh, i'll tell you what else we don't want to do is lose our entire communities and that's what happens yes it's that's hard. the that is one of yes and uh when you're when your own brother publicly calls you a heretic on social media you really feel like all right um no one's getting what i'm trying to do here and what i'm trying to do is something i think god god wants me to do god's yeah. called me to do and it's and you just go yeah i mean yeah you you lose it you you really do and there's there's been a lot of that loss and and, and unfortunately that also affects your kids Mm. Uh, their their losses um it, it also affects your wife who maybe signed up for it but didn't sign up for it you know like yeah. uh loss of 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 close friendships which is very difficult and uh as we were <clears throat> well even when i still worked at the church of north las vegas we had a, a pastoral counselor that we met with regularly and uh he was hugely helpful especially for her um, he told me, he said, you don't really need counseling. Just everyone around you that you're close to needs counseling. And I went, that's a nice way of saying that I need counseling. But uh, <laughs> <laughs> I think we all, I think we all need counseling. Maybe yeah. I'm just going by my experiences, but I know I did. It was, it was extremely helpful um, and, and helpful for her as she tried to support me in these crazy ideas that I had no idea if they were going to work and I had no idea how we were going to do any of the things um that we were doing it but i was really laser focused on the fact that god this is what this is what god's doing in my life like and like never before so i would say 2015 2016 were huge years for me <clears throat> reestablishing what my faith could look like with a very open-handed idea so one, one of the one of the ways that I deconstructed, right, was I went and I said, I'm going to, when we moved downtown, we actually lived one block from the LGBTQ center in La of Las Vegas. Mm -hmm. Neighbors across the street, the first people that we met when we were down there uh, was uh, a gay couple that actually had a restaurant in, or a little cafe in <clears throat> the LGBTQ center. And uh, what I realized is, oh, in downtown, Arts District and these areas, like, there's um, there's a lot of gay people. And also what I found was a lot of them really wanted to be a part of a church. Mm. So I was like, oh man, I really need to, like I had always just gone by what I had always been told regarding that. And I went, maybe I should humble myself enough to go, maybe, maybe amongst these other things that I think I, we got wrong, maybe that I got wrong. And if I got it wrong, or at least if I can't say for sure 100%, this is what it is, and this is what it is not, whatever, then I need to hold things differently. And so I just went into reading people that I thought I might disagree with 
and which by the way is a great practice for anyone who wants to actually grow and transform stop reading books by all the people yeah. that you know you already agree with and read something you think you're going to disagree with and so i really wrestled with it um with that specifically what, what does that look like in, in our modern culture and what does it look like biblically and, and how do i separate out you know the, the clobber passages as they call them and how do I dive into them and and look even at some authors who were were not even Christian at all, but just were uh, working with the language, right? Like they were um, Sarah. I never remember the last name of the author, but it's a uh, Paul among the people is the name of the book, and it takes just Paul in his context, and everybody's like, oh, Paul hated women, and Paul. You know, hated gay people, and, I was, and she's like, actually, that's not what it is. And she's, uh, she's, you know, has the the premier um, translations of, of like the Iliad, the Odyssey. So, like, this is what she does. She studies the language, so she studies language and culture, and then writes about it in relation to Paul. And it became mm. very eye opening that we're getting it wrong, mm. and that some of the certainty with which people were speaking of these things were just. They were not, again, taking into account the the hermeneutics, the interpretation and that process. And so I just said, because, and I wasn't even fully like sure what I believed at that point, right? I, we were starting this church and and we actually had a, a gay couple that someone had told them that they were, they were Christian. They were actually way more conservative Christian than I was at the time. But they were a gay couple and they wanted to be a part of a church. And someone told them, hey, well, they're starting a church and you guys are always downtown. You should check it out. And I talked to them and I, I wasn't on the same page, but they had done this as well. They were mm-hmm. uh, very concerned. They went to, to Cedarville. Oh, really? In Ohio? Yeah, yeah. Yeah. And so they had, they said, yeah, we're pretty theologically conservative except for this. Right. And, uh, and I didn't even at the time necessarily know if I agreed or disagreed. I just tried to listen and learn. We had them over for dinner and I said, well, let me tell you this, what I can see in tell is that you are following jesus Hmm. and while i'm not sure if i disagree or agree or where i'm at with this as i'm really trying to explore this what i do know is that if you're following jesus you should come do that with us and that's kind of where we we put it right It, it wasn't do we agree on everything now you can come follow jesus with us it was I don't even know if I agree with you or not, but I'd love for you to come follow Jesus. You actually built the bigger table. Yeah. And that, that was, again, that was, and we discussed that sitting around a table, right. At dinner. Uh-huh. Um, and, uh, and so that they were huge, they were huge influences uh, for me to go, you need to look at this and reexamine it. And so that's kind of how like things like that would be like the brick by brick. Uh, I'll even take, you know, there's all kinds of, ideas around racism you know growing up in the south and independent fundamental baptists which were more conservative than the southern baptists which was which only existed as a response to uh you know um anti-racist things that were happening in the country and christian schools were a result of yeah of uh, a direct response to you're not going to make my kids go to school with black kids right and so i remember at ttu this was a big one there was a professor there, and I'm not going to remember his name, but he told a story and about being called to his first church in Alabama, 
And when they ushered a black couple out of the church and sent them down the road to a different church, he said, that's not going to happen. And they were like, yes, it will. And they fired him and he stood up for it. Right. And, and, and was fired over that conviction that you cannot be a racist and a good Christian at the same time. Mm. And I remember going, there's, there's probably so there's probably racism in my heart. I've got to repent of that. I've got to turn that around. I've got, but again, there was a construct that I had been given that, no, it was, it was okay. You know, there were, it was okay. Culturally, you're fine. Like it was never preached against like at all. And then you got, and then you got quacks like Peter Ruckman that are just, they just say it out loud. <laughs> oh, oh yeah. I mean, yeah, there's people that are blatantly racist that, that call themselves followers of Jesus and pastors and, and they don't even, and again, that, that's something that Jesus deconstructed for his people in his time. When he told a story about a Samaritan, that was a racial, ethnic discrimination that Jewish people had. Yeah. And he made the hero of that story, the, the hated person in that story. Mm. The hated becomes the hero in Jesus's story. And so he's coming at things, you know, not about who's your neighbor. Your neighbor becomes, oh, that person that you hate, that's your neighbor. Mm -hmm. And for them, you're their neighbor. Oh, so then there's, you know, what did Paul come to the conclusion? It's not Jew or Greek. It's not slave or free. It's not barbarian or Scythian. It's Christ is all and in all. And again, that, again, at the root of build a bigger table. If Christ is all and in all, then who in the world am I to say? You can't be a part of what we're doing here. You can't come follow Jesus with us. You know, I don't, I don't think I ever heard that verse preached on ever. Christ yeah, is all and in all. Like, yeah. At least like, not accurately. <laughs> <laughs> well, you know, a, a lot of apologists now will, will try to dance around that and say, oh, that's not what you think it means and all that kind yeah, of stuff. Like, yeah. It, literally just says that right there i mean you're telling and me when you go into it he doesn't say jesus is all in and all mm. and christ should almost always have a the because it was an it was a role it was an office it was a a position it's a it's a title that jesus jesus the christ so the christ is all and in all it that shatters any kind of racist idea that you could have it shatters any kind of uh, American first idea that that Christians should have. Again, I, I don't mind the American government putting America first. I think that's what they're there for. But as a Christian, I'm not going going to be, you know, uh, advocating hates towards other yeah. places and other people because of um, because of it. And yeah, it's so it's things like that. Again, just little by little, when you reread, reevaluate, you start to pull it apart. And for me, brick by brick. Uh, I looked at my construct and, and, and I believe my construct became this like inside out thing. It wasn't this thing that protected me from the world. It actually became this thing that's in me. Again, the, the, your body becomes the temple of the Holy Spirit. So then it's now this inside out thing. It doesn't mm. keep me from the world. It doesn't protect me from the world. It's not a bubble from the world. It is now a mechanism to take me into the world mm. and to participate in what I believe that God was doing through Christ Jesus on the earth. If we're the body of Christ, that's the idea that we're, we're turning it inside out. Um, and again, people, but people judge. I mean, again, I, I've been called all sorts of things and told all sorts of things um, just because I, 
I admit the shortcomings of human interpretation. And I think it's, I show grace for people who want to really know better. Like, like when I, when I think of your, your story and I hear you say that, you know, you, you closeted atheists, right? And well, I mean, then, I worked in Christian schools. I mean, it's so, it's so spiritually uh, vampiric mm -hmm. to have your faith tied to your income. Yes. Like you either have to stop all search or growth or become ostracized or lose your ability to make a paycheck. Yes. Or you begin to hide who you really are. You lose all authenticity. Your life becomes completely compartmentalized. And I think yeah. that's where a lot of people are. I think there's a lot of people working in, working in schools and churches and colleges that do not believe what the church is telling them. They're not on the same page, but they pretend they are. Yeah. Because of, as you mentioned earlier, the social uh, element of it, right? These are my friends, my family. If I tell them that I read a Rachel Held Evans book, they're going to um, ostracize me. So I just compartmentalize my life. At work, I'm this person. At home, I'm this person. In my personal life, and that, to me, that rips you apart. Um, it does. Are, I mean, if you can't be authentic and you have, you don't feel like you have autonomy, that those freedom. are big big causes of suffering like it really hurt you know i got to a point where i was like i just wish some of my friends and family could really know who i was or where i stand on this and it'd be okay and you know the irony of all that is the closest ones it's always been okay and even right. once i told them everything it was still okay they still love me the same way. Everybody else, hey, you know, you can think what you want to about me, but I don't want to yeah. suffer. I don't want to suffer anymore. Yeah, I just, I just want to be me. And there's definitely, like, when I go home to Florida, I am a little different than you know. There's just yeah, I it, it it's is hard. That, that has not been my same experience, right? They yeah. Tells you they still love you. Now there's a few people. Um, but you know, coach, you, you know my dad pretty well. So like <laughs> Yeah. No, your well, your dad was a he was an enigma to me uh in so many ways. For one, he's a basketball coach. He kind of looks like a nerd, right? <laughs> that wouldn't know anything about basketball, but he really, really knows basketball. Um, he's really soft spoken, but he's an excellent leader. Right. Yeah. And that to me, that that wasn't how I was. If you were a leader. You had to be loud. Right. He's not heavy handed. Yeah. Yeah. And and yeah, there was just such a balance to your dad that was um, that was different than what I imagined, you know, when I got there. And honestly, your dad looked out for me. I don't know if you remember. I, I wasn't invited to Tennessee Temple to play basketball or anything like that. I came with someone who was invited. I remember I, that. I spent my last dime. I drove my car full of everything I owned. And I just drove to Tennessee Temple one day. College had already started. And I show up and I'm sitting next to, to Drew, who was there. He was invited. They were planning on him enrolling and all that stuff. And, uh, and I told him, I told Drew, I said, I'll go. I'll stay I'll just sleep in my car if I have to, which I didn't realize how bad downtown Chattanooga was. No. Um, I was like, I'll sleep in my car if I have to. And if they let me in, though, I'll go. And if not, I'll just drive to my parents' house in Georgia. They had just moved to North Georgia. I was like, I'll just re reevaluate my life because things were 
were pretty empty and, and just rough. Like it was good, but I had a bad car accident just all these things that kind of compiled and your dad, I don't know if it was cause he saw my size uh, and knew I was dreaming, but he, he got me a room that night and he, he, uh, yeah, just invited me into everything that was going on. And I, you know, went to college there and just the one year came out with, a friendship that would turn into a marriage with my wife. And so that's what I tell people, wow. like, I left there with one thing and that was, you know, the person that I would marry, but yeah, your dad, he showed incredible kindness and generosity to some stranger showing up. I mean, they put me in a dorm room. They probably shouldn't have, I wasn't enrolled. I wasn't on the books in any way. And different, different times, uh, very trusting people too, <laughs> you know? <laughs> Yeah, well, yeah. I mean, I just think of the, the lenses of liability, right? Like something yeah. happens to me in the dorm room, and I'm not even on the books. It's well, like, now it's like you could never do that. Never, like that. never. Yeah. So, yeah. But your dad was very generous and always been very balanced. He uh, he had a I had a similar story about movie theaters when I was 16. Oh yeah, and, uh, yeah. I asked my dad. I was like, Dad, I this girl I really want to date, and this is my chance. I asked her out and she said yes. And she asked if we could go see the movie Titanic. I was like, I know we don't do that, but just one time, can you make an exception? And he goes, Josh, that's their rule, not mine. He's like, you go on your date, have fun. And I'll see you at 11 o'clock. It's like, yep. Why didn't I, what, why didn't I ask this before? Right, like, right, right. Well, I just assumed, you know, yeah, because yeah, he's working there and you know, you can't talk about it. Yep. Yeah. Yeah. You can do it. You just don't talk about it. You don't get caught. You go out of town. All the, you know, it's so funny. Like even as adults, the adults in our life were skirting the rules yeah, you know, yeah. at times. You're I like, mean, the rules what? were a little bit much. And the funny thing now is a lot of people are wanting to talk about those rules still. It's like, you know, so past that, I don't care whether women can wear pants anymore. Yeah. Like that's not something that has been an issue for, I don't know how, my whole yeah. life uh but yeah to I the rest of the world and that again yeah. that's the thing and what what is it mark twain says uh, that tra traveling like kills prejudice in our heart mm -hmm. right when you when yeah. you just have a bigger world a bigger world view you realize oh this is incredibly cultural and they made it biblical uh they made it spiritual mm. and it's it's not the case uh, i remember that's a great point yeah with, with a guy well even in our own country so like there's different places different things uh i interned with a church in hawaii um in 2008 in the summer of and how i was going there was a guy and he had gone to college at pensacola christian college another pretty you know even more outrageously um strict yeah we'll school. just say they're outrageous <clears throat> yeah um and he he had gone there but then he was a youth pastor in hawaii and he was explaining to me when I was in college, my, my sister was friends with him and um, I knew his brother and all that. So we were just talking one time he was in town and, and he mentioned like, yeah, like, you know, at our, at our church for like an activity where we're going to be in the pool or at the beach or the lake or the creek, or whatever, you know, there were certain dress codes for girls that were, and usually mostly the girls right but occasionally the boys sometimes had dress codes around those things depending on what church you were at you know but he said those don't that wouldn't work in hawaii mm. you just couldn't do it it's it's a totally different <laughs> he was explaining just the cultural differences yeah. 
he said that they wear their bathing suits everywhere like bikinis were underwear because you never knew when you're going to be and then when i went there and really saw that firsthand i was like man that's like yes culturally there's so many things i mean you know church starts at five o'clock but it was more like 5 15 before it actually started that island time everybody getting in from surfing depends on how good the waves were and and it just was fascinating to me and again that was a big step out i went to japan as well and and uh worked with a church there and it was a big uh, even seeing that there were a baptist church in japan but it was very different mm. uh, in some really beautiful ways by the way not just in stupid ways like wearing bikinis or whatever <laughs> uh, you know in, in some really beautiful ways it was just it was wonderful and so yeah i think the bigger your worldview you see those little things they're they're non-issues to the rest yeah. of the world they're not you've made an issue of this thing that is a non-issue to the rest of the world i guarantee it's probably the same way in vegas oh like, yeah i, I mean, a church in vegas well people uh out here i remember my my father-in-law the first year we were out here he visited and he's like oh, it's a really interesting place like he thought it was really neat the, you know the strip and all this kind of stuff he said i never raised kids here and i just remember thinking we're gonna raise your grandkids here <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> and and uh um and you know uh some other like you know in-laws and things like that they would they would come in and and just like it, everything was shock value right and you it becomes white noise when you're here and you have to again grace is a big thing uh just the idea that we um that we that we're living in the idea of, of grace right because these people don't they they weren't raised the same way i was raised they don't believe the same things i believe and but I want to know what it is they believe. Mm. I want to love them and I want to have those conversations. And if what I believe is true is true, it doesn't need me to defend it. It just needs me to present it. Right. Like that's yeah. like the gospel. The gospel isn't like a demand. It's an announcement. It's And that's kind of how we viewed it. And yeah, there was all kinds of people. I mean, again, it's, you want know, to talk about the LGBTQ community? That was a big adjustment for for me and my family at times, uh, just to be around trans people at, uh, you know, at a conversation talking about church and God, and they're desperately going, "I would love to be a part of a church. I love Jesus. I love what you're doing out there, man. I absolutely <laughs> love that. If you could, if you could tell, we'll finish with this question. If you could tell American Christianity as a whole one thing and it really sink in something that you truly believe like what would it be you're trying to change the world here if if <laughs> uh that if you, you take it all back to jesus right the uh -huh. life the message the the story all of that you take it all back to jesus so many of the the things that you've found to be important will become less important. Mm. And in that, Jesus will become more important. And I, I truly believe, someone asked me, why do you, why Jesus? Why not these other things? And I said, because I believe what Jesus did is fundamentally different than every other religion. It wasn't about me getting up the mountain. It was about God coming down and going, you can't make it up the mountain to me. So I'm going to come down 
and I'm going to remove the mountain completely and, and be in total relationship with you. And that is a different spiritual story than everybody else. And if we hone in on that, all the other things we think are super important become way less important. Jeremy, it's so good to reconnect again. And I really appreciate you coming on the podcast, man. For sure. Thanks for having me, man. This is a fun conversation. It was. We'll, we have to I do it again. It. We have to do yes. it again. For real. For sure. So I plan on keeping this thing going for a while and hearing a lot of different perspectives. So, I you know, hope, maybe I'll have a different perspective next time you come on. Oh, that makes it more fun. <laughs> yeah. Well, dude, it was great seeing you again. And uh, this is Institutionalized. I'm Josh. And that was Jeremy. And uh, if you get a chance, check out his book, Build a Bigger Table. It's available on Amazon. It's link in the show notes. And also, if you could leave us a rating or review and subscribe, it really help out a lot. Thank you for listening.